you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we're going to look at verses 33 down through verse 45. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. You'll remember the context is that we're in the final week of Jesus' life. And you'll remember on that Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry. He comes in as the conquering king. The crowds are worshiping, but he's also the humble king. He rides in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He's the humble king who comes to lay down his life for the people. So the picture is they're celebrating Passover. That's why they've gathered in Jerusalem. And they're celebrating God's uh, deliverance from the bondage of the Egyptians. And Jesus here is coming and he's presenting himself as the Passover lamb who comes not to free them from the Romans or the Egyptians, but from the greater bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And they don't get it, but they're rejoicing because they think he's come to free them. And there's a small segment of the crowd, they don't like him. In fact, they hate him. He's cutting in on their territory. And so Tuesday, he goes, or Monday, he goes in temple, and he, he, remember, he cleanses the temple. He shuts down Old Testament temple worship. They've taken this place that was intended to demonstrate the evangelistic heart of God. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, and they've profaned it and taken it and used it as a place to profit off the people of God under the guise of spirituality and under the name of God. And Jesus comes in and says, that's enough. No more. We're shutting it down today and he cleanses the temple Tuesday he goes back into the temple and this group the religious leaders uh, they're livid and they don't like him and they put their heads together and they've come up with all these little questions and they're seeking to trip him up the tough part about trying to trip up the king of kings and lord of lords is he's omniscient he knows everything so they're gonna have a little tough tough time trying to trip up Jesus and they're bringing their questions they question his authority Jesus has silenced them and it's interesting at this point Jesus is kind of on the offensive now he's been somewhat passive towards their rebellion and their rejection but we as we hit this point in fact we're gonna see it all the way 22 23 he is very pointed in his condemnation of these religious leaders and one of the means of condemnation that he'll use is parables. It'll be veiled language, but the meaning will be abundantly clear. And the parable that we see here in these verses to me is probably, in my mind, in my humble estimation, is probably the most impressive of all Jesus' parables. Because in this parable, Jesus is going to give us the fullness of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, and he's going to do it in 11 verses. That's pretty good, isn't it? Could you summarize all of God's salvation history from Genesis to Revelation and do it in 11 sentences? Probably not. Only Christ can do this. He's going to tell us what God was doing, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. It's marvelous. It's beautiful. But it's a message of condemnation towards anybody who would stumble over Christ as the precious cornerstone of life. On the other hand, it's a beautiful message of invitation and blessing and salvation to anyone who would recognize Christ as the precious cornerstone. It's a powerful picture of God's persistent love towards a group of people who constantly spurn him, but he loves them and he desires them to walk in fellowship with him and he'll seek them. It's a familiar story, the parable. It's about this foreign landowner who has land and rents it out to local workers who would contract with that owner to give him a portion of what they produce. That was familiar. They knew that. That was commonplace in and around Jerusalem. So the story's familiar, and the message is clear. The message of this parable is incredibly clear. It needs very little explanation or interpretation. The Jewish leadership, they know what Jesus is saying here. In fact, in verse 45, they're going to say, we know he's talking about us. 
They're very clear. Anybody who knew God's word could see what Christ was doing and the picture that he was painting in this parable. In fact, the disciples, sometimes with the parables, they would later pull Jesus aside and say, hey, what do you mean by that soil parable and that deal? And Jesus would have to explain it to them. That doesn't happen with this parable. Why? Because the message was clear. Everybody got it. Everybody knew what Jesus was saying. So veiled language, but the point is clear. Jesus is the precious cornerstone. So with that in mind, let's pray together. We'll work our way through this parable. Father, we thank you for your word, God, that it is living and active. It is inerrant, and it is alive. And God, we pray that in this moment and in this time, you'd speak to us by means of your word. God, I pray I wouldn't muddy the water this morning. Your message is so clear to us. You've made this so simple. God, I pray that your spirit would speak into each of our hearts and you draw us to yourself. We need to hear from you this morning. Bless now the study of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me at verse 33. It says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So we see here, we see a vineyard. Now, who is the vineyard that is described here? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. Often in the Old Testament, Israel is described as a vine or a vineyard. In fact, in Isaiah uh, chapter 5, in that chapter, Isaiah speaking on behalf of God says, Israel, you are my vineyard, and I dug a wall around you, and I put a tower in it. You can almost see that Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah here in this passage. Israel is the vineyard. This is a group of people that God transplanted them from the bondage of the Egyptians and he put them in the promised land. And not only did he give them land, he gave them his law. They had a revelation from God that God had spoken to these people and they understood who God was. They understood who they were. They understood how to interact with God and how they were to live. And they were to be a beautiful vineyard. What does a vineyard produce? It produces grapes, which makes wine. And wine was the the source of joy in the nation. They were to be a delight. That the picture here is in a world of wickedness, in a world of darkness and violence, you would have this one holy nation that would have a word from God and they would follow God and they would be faithful to God, and they would give him the glory that is due him, and they would be a light to the world. You remember Psalm 67, God bless us, make your face shine upon us, that your way may be known in all the earth among all the nations, that they were to be this beacon of light in the world as they followed God, and the nations would see them as a delight and say, we don't know who you are or who you worship, but we want to know your God. They were tended to be a vineyard. But then we see the landowner, and who's the landowner? Well, we know the landowner's God. God is the one who owns the vine. He owns the vineyard. He owns it all. He's sovereign over all of it. So you got the landowner, God. you got the vineyard of Israel. And who are the vine growers? The vine growers are the religious leaders. That is the priests and the Pharisees, these religious leaders. And God had entrusted them to lead the nation 
to honor God in what was rightfully his. They were to guard the nation as they followed God and they led the nation to follow God and honor him. And yet almost continually throughout Israel's history, these religious leaders had dropped the ball and not done what God had told them to do. And they had not honored God with what was rightfully his. Now there was moments in time where you would see faithful priests and faithful uh, leaders. But that was the exception, not the norm. We'll look at verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. So he sends slaves to receive what is rightfully his, to call these people, to give the owner what is rightfully his. Who are those slaves? Well, those slaves are the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets are commonly called the servants of God. And what do they do? The servants of God, the prophets of God, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Malachi, these prophets of God, they go to the nation, and what do they do? They call the nation to repent, to turn back to God, and give God what is rightfully his. And so these prophets go out, message from God, servants of God, to tell the people to repent and give God what is rightfully his. In verse 35, what does it say? The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. What is going on here? God is sending his servants, sending his prophets to call the nation back to himself to repent. And what is the overall response of the nation? It's rejection. He'll send the prophets. They don't want the prophets. They don't want to listen to their message. And often they would beat them or kill them. In fact, who is the last prophet that God would send? John the Baptist. And what did they do? They would chop off his head. They didn't want his service. They didn't want his message. They wanted it all to themselves. So what is the response of this landowner? Verse 37, But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vine vineyard and killed him. This is amazing. The landowner says they wouldn't live and listen to my servants, but maybe, just maybe, they'll listen to my own son. You know, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God long ago spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in what? In the Son. God's last word to the nation is I'll send my only begotten Son. And maybe they'll listen to him, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is my representative, and he'll come on my behalf, and they'll listen to him. And Jesus, make no mistake about it, had identified himself as the Son of God. In everything he did, he was demonstrating that I am the Christ, I am God's Son, I am the Messiah. In his miracles, he performed miracles like no one else. In his preaching, he taught us one having authority. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He has checked every box and yet the nation will reject not for a lack of knowledge not for a lack of truth not for a lack of 
evidence but for an abundance of greed. They want what he has. They want the power. They want the authority. They want to be God. And so they will reject him. And it says here that the vine growers would take the son outside the vineyard and they would kill him. And what are these religious leaders going to do in just three short days? What are they going to do? They're going to take Jesus outside the camp. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Meaning they take him outside the city. Why do they take him outside the city? Because he's considered to be unclean. And they're going to take him outside the city and they're going to kill him. This is amazing. Jesus is looking into the faces of these priests and Pharisees and he's telling them, I know what you're up to. And I know what you're going to do before you ever do it. And it's okay because it's all in accordance with God's marvelous plan and you will not stop God. And what's more amazing about this is you see the long-suffering nature of God. In fact, Jesus will ask the crowd, look in verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? He asked the crowd, what would you do? I mean, think about this. If you had a, if you had a business that you had created, you had established, and you had grown that business and set it up, and then you said, I'm going to go on abroad for a few years. I'm going to take a journey. And you hired a manager, and he was going to manage your business for you while you were away. And you went away, and the time came for that manager to give you your profit of what the company had produced. And the manager said, you know what? You're not getting any. I think I'm just going to keep it all to myself. What would you do? You would fire him on the spot, wouldn't you? You would say, you are done, sir, and I'm going to find somebody else. And yet this nation had continually spurned God and said, we will not give you what is rightfully yours. And what is God's response? He just keeps going back again and again and again, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. And then finally his son. Do you not see the patience of God in this passage that he is long-suffering? This kind of patience is unheard of. None of us would operate in this kind of way. We'd have been done with it at the very first rejection. Aren't you glad this morning that God is long-suffering with us? That he is patient, desiring none to perish. And Jesus asked the crowd, what would you do? Look at the response of the crowd in verse 41. They said to him, we will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Pretty clear, isn't it? They're mad. These people just hearing this story, they're ticked off. We're not just going to fire them. We want capital punishment. Those vine growers deserve to die. And they go on to say, and we'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And then in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. That is a quotation from Psalm 118 verse 22. Psalm 118 is part of a group of psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 are a group of psalms and they were sung at Passover. 
Psalm 113, 114 were sung at the beginning of Passover. 115 through 118 are sung at the end of the Passover. When you think about that, and it tells us in just a little bit, Jesus is going to take the last Passover with his guys, and it says they went out singing hymns. Remember, the Psalms were intended to be sung. Psalm 118, if, if they were following, if Jesus and his guys are following a traditional Passover, what would have been the last song they would have sung? Psalm 118. Isn't that awesome? These might have been the last words of Jesus before he leaves the upper room and goes to die on the cross for our sins. But that Psalm 118, it's a psalm of David in which the nation uh, led a rebellion against him. The national leadership, it talks about the princes of the nation, tried to push him out. They didn't want David as king. They tried to push him out. And the psalm is really a a psalm of praise. David is praising God for his loving kindness and how you've protected your anointed. That they tried to push me out. They tried to kill me. They surrounded me. But God cut them off. And God reestablished me as the rightful king. And so if you read Psalm 118, which you ought to go home and read today because it's powerful. In fact, it's it's. Quoted six, Psalm 118 is quoted six times in the New Testament. Twice right here in chapter 21. But you read Psalm 118 in verses 1 through 21. It's David just praising God for the protection as he is the rightful king of the nation. But then in verse 22, the pronoun shifts. And it's not David speaking anymore. It's the nation speaking. And do you know what the nation says? The nation says in verse 22... The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the precious cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and it's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. It's the nation rejoicing that God protected his anointed, and while the nation's leadership didn't want him, God established him, God raised him up, and we are bending the knee today, and we are recognizing David as the rightful king, and we know that God raised him up, and it's marvelous in our sight. Does that story sound remotely familiar this morning? Of a king who is the anointed king of God. He is the king of all kings in Psalm chapter 2. As for me, God says, I have established my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Meaning God establishes a king. You're not voting him in. He ain't running for savior. God has established him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But the nation of Israel, its leadership, they didn't want him to be king. You remember Pilate says, here's your king. They say, we got no king but Caesar. You crucify him. We don't want him. So they put him in a grave. They put him on a cross. They put him on a grave. And they thought they had killed him. And they thought they were done with him. But they didn't have the final word, did they? God had the final word. And what is his final word? It's called the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That you may not want him and you may not try to kill him, but I will raise him and he will be king. And now there's a group of people, you and I, who bend the knee and we recognize this stone that was rejected and hated and crucified him, but God raised him. And now we worship him as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Amen? (laughs) Folks, if... I'm telling you, if you don't read God's word and get excited, something's wrong with you. This is awesome. Jesus takes this verse. You see what he's doing? Jesus, in that verse, he's foretelling his death, burial, and his resurrection. Isn't that awesome? 
So I told you it's the full picture of salvation history. We've seen the establishment of Israel in Genesis. We've seen the Pentateuch. We've seen the prophets who went to the nation calling the nation back to repentance. We've seen what? The Gospels. We've seen the coming of the Son in the Gospels. We've seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the end of the Gospels. And what comes after the Gospels? What book comes after John? You you can interact with me here. What's the next book? Tell me somebody knows. Acts. And what is the book of Acts about? The church. The ecclesia, the called out ones. That God is going to say, if they won't do what I asked them to do, I'll find somebody who will. And he comes to us. Look at what it says in verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Listen to me this morning. That's you and I. We get drawn into this story that the nation will, will reject in the Gospels. The, the, in, in the Acts, the, the, the Peter and the apostles, they'll go back to the nation, but the nation is going to reject again. And then what does God do? He's going to go Acts 8. He's going go, to go to an Ethiopian eunuch. Then he's, he's going to go to Samaria. Then in chapter 10, he's going to go to Cornelius. He's, he's going to jump the banks, and he's going to go to all these barbarian Gentiles and he's going to begin drawing a people to himself. People that can't trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. People that trace their lineage back to barbarians in Germany, idol worshipers in Scotland and he's going to begin calling a people to himself. And what are they going to do? They're going to do what Israel was intended to do. And the spirit that was intended to be poured out upon the nation will now be poured upon this people. And the blessings that were intended for the nation will now be poured out on this people. And they will proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Don't miss this, folks. This is the beauty of God's salvation history and his plan that you and I who have no business being a part of God's people. God says to one group, you sit down. You wouldn't do it. Now you're in. And you get to play. It's your turn. And God invites us in. Now is that the end of the story? The acts and the writings of the epistles to the churches and the encouragement of the church that God is building up into a spiritual house to do the work of priests. Is that how the book ends? What is the final book of the Bible? Revelation. And what is Revelation about? About the judgment of God. Well look at verse 44. We got the judgment of God. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus is taking a quotation of Jewish priests. They had this little saying, the Jewish rabbis had this little saying that they said, "If, if the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. But if the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. And what it's really saying is it doesn't matter if the pot falls on the stone or the stone falls on the pot. The stone always wins. And Israel thought of themselves as the stone. They thought of themselves as invincible. And to some extent, they were. Those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And inasmuch as Israel was faithful to God, did they ever lose a battle? Not once. Didn't matter if they attacked somebody or somebody attacked them. If they were faithful to God, they always won. But Jesus now takes that saying and he attaches it to himself and he says, I want to remind you of something. 
There is only one who is invincible and is the precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He is the invincible stone. And he is warning the national leadership. You fall on him, you try to take him out, you try to kill him, it will not work out well for you. Woe to you. And then he says, if, I, if he falls on you, meaning he comes on you in judgment, woe to you. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Jesus is telling him, I'm the only invincible one, and you don't mess with God's anointed king. You want to do a really cool study in the Old Testament? See uh, the rebellion of the people against God's anointed kings. David had several times when people would rebel on one, well, Saul, Saul didn't want, Saul knew, King Saul knew David was the anointed king, but he didn't want David, he wanted to be king, and he rebelled against David. How did that work out for him? He fell on his own sword, his body was strapped to the wall of Beit Shan, and his head was put on a spit. Message, you don't mess with God's man. Sheba led a revolt. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, Sheba led a revolt against David. Didn't want David as king. And David sent his army after Sheba, and Sheba ran, and he ran and fled and head into a, uh, 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 fled into a city called Abel. And Joab and his army was coming against the city of Abel. And there was a wise woman in that city, and she said, let me talk to Joab. Job says, come on, let her talk. And she says, we love David. We're just trying to be faithful. What's going on here? We don't want to be destroyed. And he said, well, we don't really have a beef with you. We just want Sheba. She said, well, how about we just cut his head off, throw it over the wall, and be done with this deal? And Joab says, sound like a good deal to me. She goes back in. They find him, cut his head off, throw it over the wall. Job says, good day. They go on down the road. Again, you know what the message is? You'll mess with God's man. It will not end well for you. And all of those men were just ordinary men. We're talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, the only one who is truly invincible. And these guys are seeking to take him and Jesus is warning him. You fall on me, woe to you. I fall on you, woe to you. You will not beat me. You can rebel. You can reject but I am God's chief cornerstone. What's the application really quickly? Number one, if you're here, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know Jesus Christ, you've submitted to him as Lord of Lords. He's the chief cornerstone in your mind. He is the source, the foundation of all life and salvation. If that's you this morning, two things this speaks to you. Number one, it tells you of your identity in Jesus Christ. Peter will take Psalm 118, he will quote it, and then you know what he'll say? For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Do you understand that today? If that doesn't overwhelm you today, you're missing the whole point. God had all these little pet names for Israel. They're my chosen race. There's my royal people. They're a holy nation. I love them. They're special to me. And now what God is doing is he takes those pet names that he had for Israel and he transfers them to us. Gentiles. 
No business being a part of the family of God. And God says, come on, there's peace. And through faith, if you'll recognize Christ as king, you become my people, adopted into my family. Imagine you were to go out to adopt a child this week and you met with the social worker. The social worker told you, you know what, that child, you need to know this, that child has acted out violently, that, I, that child has acted out sexually, and we need to give you some family history. The, the grandfather, the father, the great-grandfather, they all have histories of violence and murder and they all took their own life. Would you want that child? And if you did adopt that child, would you not always be watching that child as they interacted with the rest of your family? I'm here to tell you this morning, that child, that boy is me. And that child is you. We were objects of wrath and children of disobedience. We had dishonored God. We had acted out in every way morally, dead in our transgressions and sins. No way to stand before a holy God. And yet he reached down in his mercy and he took hold of our lives and he peeled back the blinders so that we could see Christ as the chief cornerstone. And we submitted to him and he said, now you are my people and you are my child. You are holy and precious in my sight. Folks, if that doesn't speak value into your life, nothing ever will. What a great love the Father's lavished upon us that we should be called his children. Secondly, not only tells our identity, it tells us our responsibility that we're to go out and do what Israel was intended to do. Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God help us if we neglect and fall into the same trap of Israel and neglect the responsibility to give God what is due him. We are to be the vineyard of God, Jew and Gentile alike, united in Christ. We're to be the vineyard of God to produce the fruit of righteousness. John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. You gotta produce fruit, not vegetables. Fruit. Meaning we become a delight to the world and we proclaim the excellencies of God. We live out the righteousness of God and the world says, I don't know what there is about that guy, but I sure want to know more about him and how he came to be that way. That's us. What a privilege. God raised us up from the depths and said, you're in the game. And to give our life to him, having received so much, is not a sacrifice. It's a privilege, amen? Secondly, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. You don't know Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that in this passage, you see the long-suffering nature of God. He continually pursues those whom he loves. And some of you are here this morning and God's been persistent in pursuing you, yet you've been rejecting. Maybe it was somebody who gave you a Bible. Maybe it was somebody who invited you to church. Maybe it was somebody who told you about the good news of Jesus Christ. And you heard it and you know the truth and yet you've rejected. These Jewish leaders, the amazing part about this is they were within touching distance. Touching distance of the Savior of the world. And they missed him. Not because they didn't have access to the truth. He was right there in front of them. Not because he wasn't speaking to them. He was speaking to them. 
They missed him because their hearts had grown hard and their rebellion and their rejection. It's why the author of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's not that God won't stop speaking, but that your heart would become so callous that you could no longer hear when he does. And I am here to tell you today, if you continue down a path of rebellion and rejection, you will not know his salvation. You will know his condemnation. Your name will not be written in the Lamb's book of life. And ultimately, you will be cast away into eternal lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that harsh? You bet it is. What God is saying to you today God is patient. God is long-suffering. But don't mistake his patience for a lack of follow-through. Meaning just because he hasn't come, there's people that say, well, he hadn't come yet. He's not not coming. No, listen, he hasn't come yet because he's long-suffering. He's not come yet because he's a patient God and he desires none should perish. But make no mistake about it, he is coming back again someday. And at that moment, it'll be too late. I'm challenging you today. Don't run with the fools down a path of rejection and destruction. Submit to the king. Acknowledge him for who he is as the precious cornerstone of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Father, we ask you this morning. God, if there's anybody here, I ask you, I plead with you, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray today you'd work in their heart to draw them to yourself. Peel back those blinders so that they could see Christ. The world looks at him and says he's weak. He's the rejected cornerstone. God says, nah, he's my chief cornerstone. He's the foundation of life. I pray that there'd be somebody here today that would trust in him, acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we give our lives to you in service that we would do what you intend us to do, give to you what is rightfully yours, which is our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God is leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you about what it means to know Jesus. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family, become a member of Lenexa Baptist Church. Maybe you just wanna pray, this is your time. Know this this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. You respond as we sing.